The second reading is found in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and is on page 1023 in the Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Here ends the reading. Do you know it's Father's Day? Good. Just make sure. <laughs> nah, we got uh, the way God plans things. I didn't even think of Father's Day when I planned this many, many months ago. But uh, we're looking at the letter of Timothy, and how does it start? To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Paul giving fatherly advice to Timothy, and that's what we hope we remember fathers for. Fathers setting a good role model, or um, you know, giving us good advice on life. And if a father was going to give advice to a son, what sort of advice would a father give a son? You know, would they say something about money? You know, the world is not money, and in fact you want to control money rather than let money control you because you can get so much into debt and money can control your life. Or would a father want to say something to a, a son about um, peer pressure and society pressure and cultural pressure and all the, the things to conform and be like this rather than thinking for yourself and weighing up and making good decisions for yourself? Would a father want to say that? Yes. Uh, would a father want to say about uh, friendships, about particularly getting into marriage? Don't rush into a relationship develop a strong friendship before you make that bond of marriage. Don't let your emotions take you away and think this is the be-all and end-all without having that good foundation for a lifelong partner. Would a father want to pick up what we looked last week at where it said uh, about the idea of having self-control, saying no to certain things and that self-discipline about running and pursuing those things. I'm sure a father would. So I'd like to have a child to do that. Well, Paul's going to give Timothy advice because Timothy's in a, in a challenging position. Paul's left him to, be a, to guide the Ephesians church and to avoid a very real present danger that could shipwreck their relationship with God. So Timothy's got the pressure on him. 
And Paul uh, is going to advise him. Let's have a look at it. We, that reading from Jeremiah, which is sort of happening you know, hundreds of years, six, seven hundred years before Timothy, uh, reminds us that false prophets are always around. They're around then, they're around the time of Timothy, they're around today. Uh, they're people who are speaking in the name of God, but they're telling lies. What they're saying is not from God, it's from themselves. And there's a real danger and we need to um, be able to discern and understand who they are and not follow them. So that's something that's relevant today, what Paul's saying to Timothy. Okay, look at the 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Jesus Christ our hope. Paul has authority. A true apostolic succession is not um, you know, just handed down from person to person in a family line or in a line of chosen successors. True apostolic succession is going to be uh, handed down in continuity to doctrine, in continuity to teaching. The teaching that, that Jesus passed on to his apostles and that's been passed on down generation after generation after generation, that is true apostolic succession. And it's important to hold that doctrine, that teaching, because if you don't, lose, if you don't hold that, you'd go away from Christ. And so it goes on to say, and the hope in Christ Jesus our Lord, or Christ Jesus our Lord, our hope. Hoping in Jesus, relying on Jesus, and a sure and certain hope because you know who Jesus is, you know what he's done, you know how it impacts you, and that's a sure and certain hope because Jesus rose from the dead and said, those who follow me will rise too. So it's got to be based in the truth, it's got to be based in facts, it's got to be accurate, and it's got to focus on Jesus. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, verse 2. Uh, Timothy came from Lystra in Turkey, not far away from Ephesus. Uh, we want to put the map up. We'll talk about Ephesus in a minute. Oh, it's behind me. Okay. Right. Uh, where, where Timothy comes from is not marked on there, but he's in that region of Turkey, and we'll see Ephesus, and we'll look at that in a minute. Just leave that up there. Uh, Timothy's father was Greek. His mother was a, a Jewish Christian. We see that in Acts 16. From childhood he'd been taught the Old Testament. We read that in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. Chapter 3. His relationship with Paul and Timothy. Well, he calls him my true son in the faith. And perhaps Timothy was led to Christ by Paul during his first visit to Lystra. Um, we know he accompanied Paul all the way to Jerusalem for when Paul was first imprisoned there in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. And we also know that when he released, um, he was asked to stay with Paul until he came to Ephesus and Paul sent him there. There's a close relationship between Paul and Timothy because in all of Paul's letters, six of Paul's letters, Timothy is a co-sender. Right? So Paul's saying him and Timothy are writing, or him and Timothy. Timothy's mentioned in a very co-sending spot uh, with Paul in these letters. So he's, he's actually got a very distinctive relationship with Paul. He wasn't an apostle, he wasn't an overseer, he wasn't a bishop, because um, he was given instructions about those roles, and we'll read that later on in 1 Timothy. But we can best regard him as an apostolic representative doing specific work at the direction of Paul 
as we see in uh, chapter 1, verse 5 in a minute. He's young. We see that in chapter 4, verse 2. Um, probably when he started his missionary journeys, he was in his late teens or early 20s, and he was uh, 13 to 14 years doing these journeys before he comes to uh, staying in Ephesus. So by now he's mid-30s. But that's young. Because remember, we're looking at the Jewish sort of uh, traditional way where the leaders of the church are the sort of you know, grey-haired like me, older, you know, 50s, 60s, older. You know, older you are, the more you're a leader. Someone who's a young guy, um, you know, go on, how come you're the leader? Um, so it's going totally out of the mould of what the Jewish system would have passed down to them, or what the other religions would have passed down to, because always older is wiser and leader. And younger people know that's not always true. Um, so he's young. And look what it says here. It goes on to say, Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, my true son in the faith, I want to remind you of things. Grace. You know, God's unmerited favour that saves you. God's unmerited favour by which you're forgiven. Mercy. You're not treated as you deserve. You know, you're still you're still failing to obey God and God could be you know, pouring wrath and anger on you, but he doesn't treat you like that. He's merciful. And peace from God, the God the Father of our Lord and Father of Jesus Christ our Lord. Peace. Peace in your relationship with God. God has forgiven you. You're a part of his family. Peace as you go forward in life, as you trust God. Peace of mind, knowing he's trustworthy. We see in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the reason Paul's writing this letter, the reason uh, he's telling Timothy to stay there and do these things. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Truth is really important to Paul. It's important in this letter, particularly when you've got so many false teachers telling lies. And Timothy's role is to stay there and help God's household to conduct themselves in a way that's going to please the living God. Now, churches have always struggled with uh, difficulties of false teaching while they're waiting the appearing of Jesus Christ to come. There's always been that problem. There always will be that problem. Look at verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia and sought to stay there in Ephesus, which you see where it is behind us, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies. Um, Paul goes over that Philippi area is Macedonia. He's over in that area. He's left uh, Timothy in Ephesus, or we know that Timothy comes from the Turkish area, uh, but it's still a big ask, and he's got a big thing ahead of him because he's been charged with um, helping the maintain the sound doctrine in the church, sound and true doctrine. He's to stop the spread of false teaching. We see in chapter 4, the false teachers are forbidding people to marry and ordering to abstain from certain foods. We know that uh, in Jesus there's no food laws and marriage, well, even though Paul wasn't married, the other, all the other apostles were married. Now, Paul's an exception, but the others were. Uh, so they, they, they're just pulling things out that are not according to the teaching of the Bible and not according to what's been handed down to them at all. Timothy's going to have to deal with Jewish 
people who are using the Old Testament to create these mythical stories and, and it's a form of early Gnosticism. Gnosticism is going to come along a bit later, but Gnosticism is going to say you get this special knowledge, this new knowledge, you need this knowledge. And Gnosticism is going to draw a di- difference between you know, the spirit being entirely good and the body being evil. And it's, um, it's going to lead to an unbiblical dualism, a separation, um, where in the body you can do one thing and in the spirit you can do another. And it's almost as though in the body you can live as you please as long as in the spirit you're right with God, which the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches the two have got to go together. Uh, you can't sort of you know, just have it in your head but do whatever you want in your body. The Bible definitely says no to that. So somehow they've drawn that out and created that. And it means that with this idea, they lose all sorts of responsibility of how they live their daily lives because they just, oh, the body's evil, it's just the body doing its thing, you know? Um, wow. You almost hear that sometimes when people do crazy things and, and, and get t- taken to court, don't you? They sort of claim, you know, oh, it wasn't me, it was just, you know, <laughs> body, <laughs> other people around me, I just, you know, not me, I'm a good person, I'm a great person, yeah? No, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't hold true. It's a way of avoiding uh, reality, but also avoiding that whole responsibility before God. Today, uh, we don't have so much of that, maybe tinges of it, but today the big thing is called postmodernism. And postmodernism is uh, there's no such thing as objective truth, let alone a universal or eternal truth. So truth is variable. In fact, uh, everyone has their own truth. You, know, you have your truth, you have your, your, we all have our own truth. And it says that everyone's truth is equal and relevant and what we've got to do is tolerate each other. Tolerance is the big thing. In fact, you can tolerate everything except intolerance. Uh, that certain ideas are true and others are false, certain practices are good and others are evil. You can't tolerate that because there's no definitive truth. We hear a lot of that today, uh, particularly when it clashes with what the Bible teaches about relationships in marriage and sexuality and stuff. We hear a lot of that. You, know, you can't say that. Uh, what's true for you is not, not, you know, we've got our other truth and you can't say yours is over ours and that's how it goes. Very slippery, very hard to argue with. What did Jesus say about truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the truth. He also said he came to bear witness to the truth in John 18, 37, and the truth will set you free. And the truth from Jesus is the truth about us, that we fail to fully obey God and we need to be forgiven. We need to have our relationship mended with God. It's only found in Jesus. The truth, whatever. I said to my son as he's growing up, and a lot of teenagers say the same thing. You try and sort of tell them to do something, you know, to give them that fatherly advice. Uh, look, this will work out. This is how it's going to go, whatever. And they go and do something completely different. It's that postmodernism stuff, you know. The kids have it. Uh, they can do that. And I'm sure adults have it. You and I have to watch that we don't slip into that. It's easy. Because we can slip into it when the Bible teaches us something we don't like. We can say, oh, but there's this other thing and, and this is right for me and, and maybe all this is cultural and maybe it doesn't apply to me and we can start, start having the moving what the truth is. We've got to be careful about that. And we can all be affected by that because it's in our society all around us. Also talks about endless genealogies and uh, 
genealogies can, they can be a good thing to find out your family tree and stuff, but this endless thing, in fact, sometimes they're used for strange reasons, like the Mormons use genealogies, and, and uh, nothing wrong with that part, but they use genealogies to find out all their descendants and to baptise them by proxy so they'll go to heaven. So you can baptise in someone who lives 100 years ago, 200 years ago, baptising them today so they go to heaven, and then they haven't heard about Jesus and responded to Jesus. But it doesn't work that way. The Bible says that you're only coming to heaven through Jesus by your own personal response, or if you're a baby and a child that can't make a decision, the parents' faith can make that for them. But once you're old enough to make your own mind up about it, the responsibility is on you to make your own response to God. No one can make it for you. So there's false teachings, there's even myths like, okay, the myth is you, know, you have the baptism ceremony and it's a ceremony and it's the water that makes you right with God. We know that's not true. Um, or the other myth can be that God's a loving God and people aren't going to really go to hell except if you're a Hitler, a really bad person. Um, but that denies what says in Romans chapter 3, 23, that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All sin. And then uh, three chapters later in 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's a real problem and just doesn't go away because God's a loving God. God's got to do something about rebellious people. He's done that in Jesus. And so false teaching is going to promote all sorts of ideas and speculation and, and thinking about things rather than doing God's work. It's going to move, away, move us away from the Bible and Jesus. It's going to result in dangerous er errors that are going to impact a person eternally. And it's going to promote arguments and quarrels and just, it's going to obstruct faith and love. Look at verse 5. We've got all the controversies in verse 4. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. The goal of the command is love. The idea of love uh, and the idea behind love is a pure heart, emotions that are in a right way, emotions that are for Jesus and wanting more and more of Jesus, seeing who he is and what he's done. And a conscience, a good conscience, one that is really wanting to obey and please Jesus and honour him in our life and sincere faith that's trusting Jesus alone to be saved. You could even have a, a test of, of what is faith, of does it come from God, is it in agreement with the apostolic doctrine, teaching that's been handed down, or is it a product of fertile human imagination? Or even the test of love, does it promote unity in the body of Christ, or is it divisive? You see, faith receives from God and love builds up the church. So you can ask the question when you're hearing teaching, does it promote the glory of God and is it good for the church? There's always been false teaching that wants to divide and, and fracture and break up the work of God. And that's not what the Bible's plan is. Verse 8, we know the law is good if one uses it properly. The law, the law is good. Uh, we read in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, but in verse 7, uh, we know what sin is because the law reveals sin. We've been looking at that in Leviticus, haven't we? Uh, we see the laws in Leviticus and the need for sacrifices because sin's real. 
and sin needs to be dealt with. The law reveals our sin. Once the benchmark is set here, we can all say, hang on, we don't get there. We keep falling short. If there's no benchmark, well, we're right. We can go wherever we want to. Yeah? But once the law was sent, there's a benchmark with God and we don't reach it and we keep breaking it and we fail. The law reveals something in us. Not just we fail, but we've got a rebellious nature that we can't do it. No matter if we were some, some sort of ascetic lifestyle where we disciplined us and controlled ourselves and isolated ourselves from the world and did all these bizarre, wonderful things to try and obey the law, but we still wouldn't do it. It still would fail. The law reveals our problem. We are rebellious. And we see that, we see that in our, our around us, in the government laws. Um, why are speed limits given? To spoil our fun, aren't they? Hey? You can't rip along the road at the speed. You're like on the freeway. You've got this car that'll do 180, 200, 200 whatever. And you can't use all that power and speed you've got because the government's spoiling the fun. Well, this week there was a thing on the national road toll on TV. They had representatives from every state in Australia, the increasing national road toll, and they were asking what's the cause, the increasing national road toll, and what was the cause? Speeding. Speeding. And what's the problem with speeding? Because, yeah, okay, I mean, I've been trained in high-speed driving, so as Jeff, some of us have, some of us like to race and know how to drive fast and can do it, but there's lots of people who are just reckless who do dangerous things when they go at high speed. We've seen on TV, some of the video footage is just bizarre. And sometimes people are just out of control, not thinking of other people, thinking of only of themselves, and that's behind our problem with God. We don't consider God and others, we consider ourselves paramount. We don't obey the command to love God and love other people. We just think of ourselves and that means we do the things that are not right and can be reckless and dangerous to us and to others. And the law exposes that. Exposes our sin and condemns the lawless people. And when it exposes and condemns our, law, our, our lawlessness, our rebellion... We see, hang on, I'm not meeting the mark. I can't do these things God wants me to do. That is just so frustrating. What am I going to do? I'm going to flee to Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus Christ dying on the cross, taking the punishment for all our rebellion, all our sin, all our lawlessness. And then I want to flee to Christ and I want forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can bring. And then I want to let the law direct how I live my life as I live my life for Jesus. I want to live with Jesus in his power and his strength to try and be obeying the laws. Because I love Jesus and I love God and I want to please them. goes on to talk about some of the lawlessness in actual deeds in verse 9 and 10, which I won't read. But at the end of that, it says, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Um, what is contrary to sound doctrine? What is the importance of sound doctrine? Verse 11, that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Sound doctrine is conforming to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. 
And sound doctrine is that sort of platform where you have the truth and you can rely on it. It's unchanging, it's reliable, it's constant. It's going to give you all the benefits. It's not going to let you down. It's not going to make promises that are not going to happen. It's not trying to sell you something and get you on board like false teachers do. And the glorious gospel is the benchmark. So what's our response going to be? What's our response? Are we going to take the fatherly advice that Paul is giving here to Timothy? Will we continue by faith in the good news of Jesus? Will we not be deceived by fine-sounding theories and confidently asserted teachings that take us away from God, that don't promote his glory and the good of his church? Will we be people who, who recognise that the law is, law is good because it reveals our failure, it reveals our rebellion. The law is good in that way and the law drives me to keep driving me to Jesus over and over and over to be forgiven. And so to rely on Jesus and realise I've got so much, now I want to just please him by how I live and I want to try and obey him and keep the law. It's like a circle, it just keeps going round and round. And in living this life, we've got to be discerning Christians. We've got to keep looking at where does this come from? You know, we've got to apply that test of faith. Does it come from God? Is it in agreement with the, the apostolic teaching, that teaching that's been handed down in the Bible? Or is it the product of some fertile human imagination? The test of faith. And the test of love, does it promote unity in the body of Christ or is it divisive? You see, faith receives from God and love builds up the church. Faith receives from God and love builds up the church. Let me pray. God, we continue to live in a world, and particularly with modern media, where we're so open to theories and speculation and myths and false teaching. And Lord, help us to be a people who can discern, who keep asking the question, where is Jesus in all this? Is it taking me to Jesus or away from Jesus? Where is the Bible? Where is this coming from in the Bible? Help us to be people who can discern these things, Lord. And also, is it going to be something that's going to glorify God in my life and is going to help me to, to love and be united with other followers of Jesus? Help us to keep asking these questions, Lord, that they might be our focus and priority in how we live as your people. The living church, we pray in your name. Amen.